First Corinthians chapter 15 perhaps is one of the most glorious chapters in the entire Bible. It, in it we find a clear presentation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was died, buried, and rose again. We see in chapter 15 perhaps one of the clearest presentations of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, we see how this resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, is central to our salvation. It is necessary. It's not an afterthought. We see in chapter 15 that our sins are forgiven because of the resurrection. We see the message about his life and death and his resurrection are not just mere empty words. The the apostles were not just bloviating. It's not just hot air coming out of a bunch of deceived individuals or fooled individuals or scheming individuals. But it is, they are, uh, their words were not empty words. We also learn how we also, you and I, people in Christ, will be joined with loved ones who are also in Christ. We learn that He is the first fruits of those risen from the dead. And that He is the first fruit, that means there is going to be a follow-up, more fruit. Us also will be raised from the dead. We learned how He has conquered death, and so will we. We see this victory hymn, O death, where is your sting? And then a thanksgiving to God. But we're not in chapter 15. We're in chapter 16 today. Following the splendor of chapter 15, Paul goes on and he provides travel plans. Administration of an offering, some greetings to various people, Some might think, well, chapter 16 is a bit anticlimactic. After the glories of chapter 15, I get chapter 16. Are you kidding me? Why didn't you just end? I hope maybe today to provide a different lens for us to consider chapter 16. It might at first read seem a bit anticlimactic, but I pray that um, over the next two weeks, in chapter 16, we will see the, the beauty of chapter 16. Perhaps one of the lenses we could look through to better understand chapter 16 is by understanding that each of us may experience the highs of God's um, glorifying, glory, glorious presence. We might come on a Sunday, and maybe it's a particular Sunday, and... God just reaches down and touches you in in great and marvelous ways. The music is especially meaningful and especially moving. And the sermon uh, lifts you to the highest places. And the people that you're encountering, they encourage and they bless you. And you go home and you are just on a high. And then Monday arrives. Perhaps you are... You go to a conference or you hear a speaker and you and the the soul altering effects of that glorious conference is followed the next day by traffic and school and kids and bills. We don't dwell permanently in chapter 15. 
In the glory of chapter 15, we, we don't always just remain there. But the, but the glorious truths of chapter 15 should transform our lives. We are to then live a life that reflects God that reflects Christ, that cannot wane. When we come down, for, when we depart from the highs of a glorious gathering and Monday comes and we have to deal with kids and schools and schedules and budgets, the glories of Christ are not to wane. So a quick preview as we look at our text today. A preview, chapter 16. Chapter 16 provides an important glimpse of the church in the first century and will provide tools and reminders for the church in the 21st century. So it provides an important glimpse of the church in the first century that you and I in the 21st century might be better equipped and prepared to do the things that God has called us to do. So for the next two weeks, we are going to observe how local independent churches interact with other local independent churches around the world. How does a local independent church interact with other local independent autonomous churches? We will observe over the next two weeks how believers from a variety of backgrounds interact as family for the good of the family. That strangers see one another as brothers and sisters and function for the good of the larger family. This is not chapter 15. This is Monday morning Christianity. It is mundane. It is ordinary. It is the Christian faith. So I have kind of highlighted two big themes, and that is sharing goods and sharing lives. We will focus more today on the first big theme, sharing goods, um, and we'll touch on sharing life. So next week, we'll, that, will, that topic will bleed over into next week's message as well. So folks, welcome to chapter 16 of the gospel or the, the epistle of the of 1st Corinthians would you follow along as we read God's inerrant and living word now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the churches of galatia so you are also to do on the first day of every week each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when i come And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. 
So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother, Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at, his will, at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So we will begin with this large subject of sharing goods. And it begins with the statement, now concerning the collection for the saints. Now concerning the collection for the saints. It is likely a topic that the Corinthians have asked Paul about. You'll recall that First Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is actually a response letter. Paul is responding to the Corinthians. They'd written him a letter previously and they'd asked him a number of questions and now he is responding to those questions. We see this very clearly over in um, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Alright, so Paul is responding to various um, concerns that the Corinthians had about the church and they're writing Paul in 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to that. And so here he says, now concerning the collection of the saints, I want to inform you about this collection that we're going to take up for the saints. It's a topic that had probably been addressed by Chloe's people. You can see that uh, uh, some people... uh, that referred to as Chloe's people, most likely wrote this letter. So it appears that there's a, there was a material need of the saints in Jerusalem. And we'll see that in verse 3. So there is a need for the saints in Jerusalem. Likely it was the result of a famine. And this actually would have been the second famine um, in Jerusalem on record in the New Testament. The first was prophesied by a man by the name of Agabus, and this would have occurred around 46 to 47 A.D. And the church was able to endure, the Jerusalem church, the saints in Jerusalem were able to endure and uh, get through this because of, uh, again, a a systematic um, offering, a collection of offering was, was given to them of food and supplies and what was needed. This is likely now the second um, famine because Paul is writing 1 Corinthians somewhere around 55 to 60 AD. So this is a few years after that first one. And what Paul is doing is once again, he is calling on churches outside of Jerusalem to prepare an offering to assist their brethren in Jerusalem. So Paul is, has um, informed churches from around um, the empire about this need that's in Jerusalem. I want you to take up an offering and a collection and then we are going to take it to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so this was a theme that was close to Paul's heart. He wanted to take care of the needs of those who were, who were struggling, those who were experiencing famine. Um, and we, we see this throughout uh, the book of Acts and even through Paul's epistles that uh, uh, provision for saints who are in need was a big part of Paul's um, ministry. You have to remember that Christians in Jerusalem were likely excluded from any assistance by the synagogue or the temple. So if you were in Jerusalem, 
um, and you were a follower of Christ, you probably would not have received any material benefit from the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue or the Jewish temple. Now, what would happen is that the the temple, they they would tax the people um, and they would... uh, bring in goods for an event such as this, so that when a famine hit, the temple or the synagogue would would be able to take care of those who were part of that synagogue. But the Christians had been um, removed or excluded from the synagogue. They'd been excluded from the temple. They were not considered as Jews any longer. They were considered as those who had left the Jewish faith. And so in the Jewish system, the funds that had been set aside to help uh, other Jews, part of the synagogue, part of the temple who were experiencing famine, would not extend to Christians. And so now it becomes the privilege of the Gentile churches to assist their Jewish brethren. There is a famine in Jerusalem. Jewish brethren are being... um, afflicted by the lack of food, perhaps by the lack of income, those types of things. And now it is the privilege of Gentile churches to take up an offering and to help their Jewish brethren. Now let me go go on and say that this is more, as just some background, this is more than famine relief. You see, Paul is seeking unity between ethnic groups. Jews and Gentiles, even as Christians, there was... um, uh, Jewish people grew up all their lives despising Gentiles, and Gentiles didn't really like Jews. And now they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul not only wants to make sure that a need is taken care of, but that racial and ethnic divisions are also dealt with. And, and I put this little map up here, and, and I hope it's helpful. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But um, Paul has desired to not only help those who are enduring physical trial, he also wants to help build bridges between these ethnic fa- factions. For instance, if we look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, by the way, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 um, is dealing with the same issue, and also you'll read about the same issue in, in um, Romans chapter 15 and in Acts. You'll find this is a big event. It's, it's uh, mentioned throughout the New Testament. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 through 13, we, we read this. For the ministry of this service, he's talking about the offering. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God by their approval of this service, by the Jewish Brethren, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. So Paul is hoping not only to meet a material need, but to break down um, racial and ethnic um, walls that, that were just present. And again, you can read more about this in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and following. And Paul wants to make sure that this 
offering that is given glorifies God. And it kind of let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that the, the Jewish brethren would see the love of their Gentile brethren and they would glorify God. So Paul desires not only to help those who are enduring physical trial, he also wants to help build bridges between ethnic factions. And he's already enlisted help from Gentile churches. Look at this. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, I think I just lost my microphone, so... So Paul has enlisted help from Gentile churches across the Roman Empire. So I wanted to kind of give you a bit of a scale. So I put this map up here and down in the lower right corner, you can see Jerusalem. And over in the uh, kind of left, not quite the top, you see Corinth. Um, And so Paul is writing from Ephesus, which is just kind of to the right of Corinth. And he's writing to the people of Corinth. And he has already instructed the churches of Galatia. You can see that in the upper right corner up there, the churches of Galatia. Remember, Galatia is not a city. It is not a town. There's not the church of Galatia. It is a region. Paul has um, organized the churches in this region to prepare an offering. Now, here he doesn't mention Macedonia. I put Macedonia up there, um, but the Macedonians get wind of this offering, and they beg Paul. They beg Paul, let us contribute to this as well. And, and Paul was a little, I think he probably didn't ask them because they were broke. They were persecuted. They had nothing. And they begged Paul. Oh, please, Paul, let us give. So I put Macedonia up there because they're going to be um, part of uh, today's message, just a small part. But So you can see there is this church in Corinth. They're going to be participating with other churches in Galatia and Asia, which is where Ephesus is, and Macedonia. And they are going to, so Paul is coordinating churches in these large regions to take up an offering and then send it to Jerusalem. So... Paul has enlisted the help of these Gentile churches across the Roman Empire to aid their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. He wants to meet both physical needs and destroy these racial and ethnic barriers. Um, And so he mentions that the the Galatian churches were enlisted to help. The Macedonian churches also assisted when they heard about it. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let me just read you um, there the testimony. He says, We want you to know, brothers, he's writing to the Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Top right. For in their severe tests of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity for their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What a... What an amazing thing. We have these churches. Their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I don't know if it was a big gift. Paul isn't talking about numbers 
or dollars or talents or drachmas or anything. He is talking about um, how generous they were. They gave sacrificially. They begged Paul. And so here's my point. My point is what we see is we see local churches all over the Roman Empire cooperating together for the good of others. That's the big point. Local churches, local autonomous independent churches all over the Roman Empire see a need and they gather together and they cooperate together so that they can meet a need um, of other brothers and sisters. So that's kind of what we see. Well, not kind of. That's what we see going on in, in ch- chapter 16. Let me um, talk a little bit about the offering that they gave and that, it, that this was systematic giving. It was systematic giving. First of all, let me go ahead and state that giving is fundamental to the Christian faith. It is not an option. Freely you have been given. Um, freely you have received, so freely give. Let me just step away from my notes just a little bit. You're not going to hear from me today some sort of command. You've got to give and be more generous. That imperative um, is, is not the message. Paul has called people to be generous because of Christ who is generous. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about that as we go through. We're going to set Christ up as the model, and then with Christ as the model, then what is our response to that? So first of all, let's talk a little bit about this systematic giving. We will note that it's on the first day of the week. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. So first day of the week. So one of the interesting things, um, I think, is that we find the, chi- the, the church meeting on the first day of the week. That's Sunday. The church very early on began to meet on Sunday, on the first day of the week. This would have been the day that they would have gathered this collection. And the reason they meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, is because that is the day that Christ rose from the dead. This is this Sunday worship is not an advent, an invention of later church councils or despotic rulers, um, as you will hear at some time alluded to. Well, you know, they just did it because you know, people blame it on Constantine. Constantine wasn't a perfect man, but he gets blamed for stuff he shouldn't be blamed for. Or on some church council, well, you know, they just some church council made up that we need to worship on Sunday. The church was meeting on the first day of the week very, very early. If this letter is written 55 or 60 A.D. and Christ died around 33 A.D., this is 20 to 30 years after the death of Christ. And first day Sunday worship was well established. And we see this also in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. You can go ahead and read that if you want. But by doing so, the church was acknowledging that with the resurrection of Jesus, a new week had begun. So this was the first day of a new week. The last day of the week was Saturday. That was the end of the week. Christ rose on the first day. This is the first day of new creation. This is the first day of a new week. Jesus is Lord of this new creation. And so we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so 
on the first day of the week is when this offering was taken or received. And then second, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. First of all, note that it's each of you. Poor and rich, young and old are all called upon to participate in this offering. You will see that it is systematic. It is not haphazard. It is not unplanned. It is regular. And and I like the idea of regular because then we are recognizing it is a reminder of God's enduring provision. Every time we give, we are reminded of God's enduring provision. It is an act of worship and the entire church was called upon to join together. Just a brief illustration prior to COVID, we actually, at this church, we actually took up an offering in the middle of the service. And and the reason being was because we um, would also consider it it an act of worship. And to remind ourselves that this is part of the worship service. Just the singing hymns and praying prayers and hearing sermons, so is the offering. COVID changed that a little bit. Um, So, on the first day of every week, each of you, young, old, rich, poor, um, are to uh, participate in this event and store it up as he may prosper. Let me just, just a quick grammar geek on you. This is a passive verb. So we could, um, we, could, we could portray this or state this as on the first day of every week, put something aside as he may prosper. This is literally, since prosper is a passive verb, it's as he has been prospered, as God has prospered him. It is a reminder that everything we have is from God. He is the originator and owner of all of our material blessings. Whatever you have comes from the gracious hand of God Almighty. And some may prosper much and some little, but all of it comes from the hand of Almighty God. And if God has abundantly given you, give abundantly. If you are barely making it, reduce In the time of Jesus, what was the greatest offering that he celebrated? Remember at the temple, people are throwing in the money and it's making all kinds of noise. It, was, it, was, it, it highlighted the, the wealthy. It highlighted those who had a lot to give. But Jesus was pretty big on a, a widow who gave two mites. Tiny, tiny offering. He pointed her out. See, God owns everything. Everything you have, and some people, and I'll talk about this in a bit. People say, "Well, you know, I'm really only, you know, with this I have whatever a hundred dollars, and I only need to give whatever ten dollars, and the rest is mine." No, all of it is God's. One hundred percent belongs to God. 
He has entrusted you as a steward of that hundred dollars. And he's given you some freedom and some some ways of, of using it. So that's the first thing, as he may prosper, as God has prospered you. Let me also mention this, that this is a special offering for the poor. It is beyond the weekly offering for the ongoing needs of a particular church. So this is a special offering for the poor. So maybe a good example for those of us who have been here for, for a while, you all know that every December we take up a Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It is going to missionaries. It's to support missions. That's what we do. It is not part of the weekly offering. It is a special offering, and we would ask that as God has prospered you, give accordingly. But it is a special offering. That's what Paul is doing. This is um, not part of the weekly maintenance of the congregation. This is a special offering. And it's going to go to the needs of a particular church. And it should be proportionate. As God has prospered you, it should be proportionate. It's not a flat rate. It's not a tax that's collected. It is God, if, God hasn't, if, you, if you don't have it, don't give it. If God has blessed you, be abundant. And then he says, and, um, so put something aside as he may prosper so that there would be no collecting when I come. Paul is not going to resort to some desperate appeal or some emotional plea to get people to give more or to give it all. There are no psychological gimmicks. It's like, well, give and God's going to give back to you. Or if you give, God's going to bless you or whatever. None of that. Give from a heart that is moved by God. That's all he's saying. Give from a heart that is moved by God. You know the needs of your brothers. If God has blessed you, if you have something a little bit left over, go ahead and give that to those who have need. And then finally, Paul talks about accountability. And he says, and when I arrive, or he says, so that there will be no collection when I come. And when I arrive, that is when he comes to Corinth, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In other words, Paul is not in charge of distributing this offering. It is He has organized the gift. It is others who will bring the gift to Jerusalem. Men who are trustworthy. Men whom you have authorized. Whom you entrust. Paul's like going, I'm not taking it by myself. First of all, it was dangerous to travel. You needed to travel in a group. But also, it's like, I'm not in charge of this. You, you appoint people. And if you want me to go, I'll go with them. If you don't, I won't go. But I think Paul wants these Gentile believers to be the ones who present the gift to the Jewish brethren. To show, listen, man, we love you. Yeah, there are, there are ethnic and there are differences between us. But we love you. You are our brothers. Paul's like on I'm a Jew. If I deliver it, they'll just think, they won't think much of it. If you deliver it, it's something else. So there are no psychological gimmicks. Paul separates himself from any potential for false accusation. Um, and so he calls for other men whom the church has accredited or trusts to take this gift. And he desires to be above reproach. So with that, let me um, give you some thoughts that I think 
have scriptural warrant. Um, but let me give you some, some thoughts on giving. The question I always get asked, how much? All right, pastor, how much am I supposed to give? Just tell me, give me the, give me the number, and I'll write the check. interesting that the, the president of our of the seminary I teach at, Dr. Orge, he was the chaplain for the San Francisco Giants. <clears throat> he actually has a World Series ring. But he, he, he led a man to the Lord and uh, uh, one of the players to, the, to Christ. And one day the, the, the player calls him up and uh, very famous man calls up Dr. Orge and says, Hey, Jeff, you know what, man? Did you know there's a whole section of the Bible before Matthew? Like, before Matthew, there's a whole other part of the Bible. Are you aware of that? Jeff's like, really? That, that's really, that's, that's interesting. Wow. And, and, and I'm reading, and, and, and I'm reading in the book of Malachi. Just Malachi. But I have a question for you, Jeff. What's a tithe? And Dr. Orge is, I don't know. what Are you reading in the Hebrew? I don't know what a tithe is. Oh, a tithe. He tells the man, tithe is 10%. This guy makes like 15 million. I don't know. This was 20 years ago. So guys are making way more than 15, you know. Way, stars are making way more than 15, but 15 million probably, and probably by all of his shoe deals and everything. The guy probably made 25 million a year at least. And he's like going 10%. And he, Dr. Orge is like, I can see him calculating the numbers in his head. Well, that's awesome. Let's do it. And so I'm sure his church was happy, but. Or his pastor was happy. Uh, I'm not thoroughly convinced. There are a lot of folks in, that would say that the tithe has ended. I'm not 100% convinced at this point that the tithe has ended. I've read. I, you can send me your articles and your your YouTube videos. I've seen them all. Um, I don't know that it's completely been eliminated from the New Testament, but I but I think that there is a higher value. It's not just like well, give this. It's not a flat rate. 2 Corinthians chapter 8-9 is really, I, I think, one of our, our key verses. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read this. Paul is talking about this gift that the Macedonians want to give, this, this gift that, is being, um, that he's urging the Corinthians to take up. And he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is encouraging the church to be faithful in this relief effort, and he puts forth Christ as the model. Christ was rich. Christ had everything. He lacked nothing. You were poor. Christ laid it all aside so that you, so that by his poverty, you might prosper. It is sacrificial giving. 
So I think that is a, a great um, standard for us. We also see that it should be cheerful. Macedonians are the example. They were very poor, but they begged Paul for an opportunity to give, and they gave beyond their means. It was not only sacrificial, but it was joyful. They, they took joy in it. So listen, just throw this out there. If you've got to begrudgingly write a check, just keep it. God has always blessed us. We've always been fine. You know what? And we can always reduce. If, if funds drop, we can always cut back on a lot of things. If you've got to be grudging, it's like, oh, well. Or if you're doing it just because, well, I, I have to do it because, you know, I'm a Christian. That's what I do. Listen, if it's begrudgingly, just keep it and pray that God would open your heart to be cheerful in your giving. So it's not only sacrificial, it's joyful. Let me just also say this about the church on Randall Place. From the day that's 21 years ago, when they asked me to be the pastor and I agreed, this has been a generous church. From day one, it has been a generous church. We are grateful for your generosity. When we wanted to do missionary work, we've supplied. When we've needed to help people in the community, we've supplied. We have never argued at this point about money. The church has always been faithful and generous, and we are grateful for that. I remember when um, the first big mission trip we were going to take, Simone was going to go. Imagine that. And she was going to go to Kenya, Africa. And it was $3,500. And a number of people said, man, that's just too much. I don't know how we're going to do it. We're just a tiny church. There's like eight of us. How are we going to do that? That's just, just said, well, I don't know. That day, a check for $3,500 came in. The church has always supported the mission. This has always supported it. There's a need. If somebody's ever been in trouble, if somebody's had a medical need or a financial need or a need for rent, this church has always been generous. I am so grateful that we are not people who are just like, oh, well. But I do want to bring us back to the text here that giving is regular, it's planned, it's proportional, it includes everyone and local churches willingly participate together to meet a need that any one church would be unable to meet but by cooperating together they can meet that need and so we are part of a church network a number of churches and we give because we can do more together than we can by ourselves and first corinthians chapter 16 would be a big part of that or, or the biblical grounding for that we can send missionaries, not just missionaries from this church, but when we went down to Casa Grande a year ago and, and, and needed to help a church and we were able to, to supply the construction, this church was unbelievably generous to make sure that that got taken care of. So we are grateful. I think that we have followed this model well. I don't think we are too, we, we grumble too much in that. But this is what Paul is talking about. There is a need. Churches from all over the empire gather together. Some have a lot. Some don't have much. But everybody gathers some together so that we can meet the need of our brothers and our sisters. So 
Paul's first Monday morning request was don't forget your brothers and your sisters who are in Jerusalem. And then Paul, I'm going to shift a big shift majorly to talk a little bit about Paul's travel plans. Again, this chapter has a, a lot of what seems to be mundane, ordinary stuff, offerings and travel plans. So here we have Paul's travel plans. He wants to spend some time with the Corinthians. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend a winter so that you may help me on my journey. Paul wants to spend some time with the Corinthians there. Um, um, and he wanted to be with them. He wanted to be helped by them because, after all, to, to travel um, beyond Corinth, he would need some help. Um, the Corinthians would, would supply him with food and some finances, perhaps a ship. He would need a ship to travel, company, because travel was dangerous. But Paul is going to delay his visit until a time when he can spend significant time with them. Um, listen, I don't want to come now because I, I don't have time to spend um, significant quality time with you. When I get there, I want to be there and I want to be with you. But for now, he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus, which is, by the way, where he's writing this letter from. I want to stay in Ephesus. And he says, because a wide door of ministry has been opened to me. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door of ministry is open to him. This is God's doing. Again, we get that passive verb. Somebody else has opened the door. God has opened the door to a wide range of, um, of ministry, and there are many adversaries. Uh, we can read about this. I'll just read because you can just look over one page, at least if you had my Bible. It's just the next page over. Um, First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what Paul says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the, the affliction we experienced in Asia, which would be part of where Ephesus is. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he will deliver us from such deadly peril. And he will deliver from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. So Paul is in Ephesus, which is in the region of Asia, and he, a wide door of ministry is open to him, but there is adversity as well. Chapter, Acts chapter 19 gives some, some more details if you want to find out about the, the uh, issues that are going on in Ephesus. And if you read Acts chapter 19, you'll see that Paul has great open doors of ministry. People are getting saved. Miracles are occurring. Teaching is going forth, and riots are breaking out. Because Paul, one of the things that would happen is that Paul would preach the gospel, and people would get saved, and they would abandon their paganism. Well, and there was the Temple of Diana, and the Temple of Diana um, employed a lot of people. It was a source of wealth and it was a source of prestige and Paul's preaching literally upset the economy because people were getting saved and hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and abandoning 
their worship of Diana and calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. Well, the people who were employed or made their living from the temple of Diana are saying, wait a second, this Paul guy is upsetting everything and we're going broke. And so, hence, riots. Paul's preaching, that's an amazing thing. Paul's preaching upset the economy. Speaking the gospel will upset a sinful society. Why? Because the gospel confronts the idols of our culture. And when we speak the truth, that which is accepted by uh, an unbelieving society will get upset. And, at least in Acts chapter 19, riots broke out. Because Paul's preaching affected their pocketbooks. And so today, when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we call people to repentance, we're calling them to repent from something. Repentance is to turn around and go the other way. So we're saying, you need to turn from one thing and go to another thing. And so we're calling on people to turn from their sinful ways, these ways that... um, are contrary to um, God's purposes and God's way. And, well, when you call people and you're calling on them and saying, this is a sinful, this is displeasing, this makes God your enemy, well, you may get canceled and riots may break out. So Paul saying, I, I want to come, but right now there's a great door. And let me just also say this, that along with open doors to ministry comes conflict. Sometimes we have this superstitious idea that, you know, if, if God has called me, if God's behind this, then everything's going to go nice and smooth. Just discard that superstitious idea. It may go nice and smooth if God is behind it, and God may smooth every path, but he may not. And then our final point here will be... Um, Sharing life. So that was all about sharing goods. This is about sharing life. And Paul talks about when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. When Timothy comes, why would Paul write this? That was my first question. Why does Paul see it necessary to write to the Corinthians saying, listen, when Timothy comes, be nice to him. Right? You just think that you would. And, And there are a lot of theories. The theories are, well, Timothy's young and maybe they don't respect a young man or Timothy's uh, a, a little shy and a little bit more timid. He's not the Apostle Paul. And, and perhaps all of those things are true. But I think the Scripture interprets Scripture. So chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, we see that Paul is writing that... Um, uh, that well, let me see if I can just read some of it. That is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Let me, let me go up and give you a little context. Paul is mocking. He's sarcastic. The Corinthian church. 
He's chastising the Corinthians because they are rich. They are self-sufficient. They are in need of nothing. They are wise. Basically, he's saying, you've arrived. You've arrived at the, 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 the pinnacle of spirituality. You've been spiritually perfected, but we apostles, we're weak. We're considered fools. We're considered the scum of the earth. Paul is not writing to shame them, but to encourage the Corinthians to imitate Paul and the apostles. He's saying, now imitate me. And he's saying, that's why I sent you Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul has been chastising the Corinthian church who thinks that they have arrived. And Paul is saying, no, not only you need to act like us apostles who have been who don't see ourselves as wise, we have been despised and put down. And I sent Timothy to remind you of this. Timothy is my messenger. Timothy is my, um, uh, the one who I send to remind you of my ways in Christ. In other words, Paul, Timothy coming as Paul's representative, and he is, to remind, he is going to remind them of the ways that believers are to live, and this may cause animosity towards Timothy, because Timothy is coming and saying, listen, you guys think you're wise and you got it all together, but the Christian faith is one of humility, and the Christian faith is one of, uh, of, of going against culture. The Christian faith is, is not being the smartest guy on the block or being the wealthiest guy on the block. You may be, but that's not the essence of Christianity. Christ, who had everything, became nothing for your sake. And it's how the apostles are living, and I'm calling you to live in a similar manner. Well, that may not go over too well. They may have animosity towards Timothy. Timothy, Paul says, is doing the work of the Lord. He is not your adversary. So do not despise him. Rather, help him. He is doing the work of the Lord, which is always redemptive. Share your life with him. Help him on his way. When one assists you spiritually, help him out. He is a faithful servant of Christ. Do not take out your frustrations toward him uh, because of me. Rather, bless him. What a great message. Don't take your anger on me, out on Timothy. He is representing. He's doing what I've asked him to do. He is doing the will of God. Just a quick illustration we had years ago. We had a guy come up, some churches in Payson had um, invited a guy to come up and um, uh, speak on on Christ. And it was it was really well attended. It was held at the, uh, the, the high school. And at that time, one of the persons who, who we associate with quite a bit and kind of helps oversee some of the churches in our region. He said, are you taking care of him? Are you taking care of the man? He's going, I've been in ministry a long time and I've seen churches bring in men and their family to proclaim the gospel in their town and they get a good response, but the churches don't pay him. They don't put him up in a, in a decent hotel. They don't feed him. They don't send him with a full tank of gas on his way. Are you paying this man? Fortunately, we were, but he was very, very concerned that a man has been brought up and made to, send for, uh, to share the gospel faithfully and then is left to fend for himself. And this man, Jerry, said, I, we will have none, I will pay whatever it takes. But fortunately, everything was being taken care of. My point here is this. When people come 
to do the work of the Lord. Take care of them. Share your life with them. Don't cheap out. Don't make it like, oh, well, you know. Make sure you have a full tank of gas when he leaves town. Make sure Timothy, when he leaves, he's got a full tank of gas and you fed him. He's doing the work of the Lord. Receive him. And then finally, we get to Apollos. And I won't say much about Apollos. It's not much here. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. I love this. Paul is not the boss of Apollos. Apollos came to Christ under the ministry of Paul. But Paul's like, I'm not the boss of I'm not a dictator. He will come when he has opportunity. Listen, I don't set Apollos' schedule. So, let me conclude with this. First of all, sharing goods. None of us is exempt. How do those who will experience the glories of the resurrection in chapter 15, by the grace of Christ and the plan of God, aid others who will experience the same? How do we bless other believers and other Christians and other saints who have experienced the same glories that we had? Who will receive the same benefits by God's grace? And another question is, how can I be more generous? We probably at some time have prayed for greater prosperity. Lord, give me that raise, or can I, um, you know, help me in, in this plan to, to, to make um, a, a little bit more income? I don't have a problem with that. It's awesome. I would wonder, is part of the prayer that you might be more giving? Or is it just to buy another toy? When I pray that prayer, so let me just put it on me, not on you. So when I pray, Lord, give me that raise or help this income come in or blah, blah, or whatever, so that I can buy a new set of carbon wheels for my bike. Well, now I need to buy a whole new bike. <laughs> but, but I would want it to come with carbon wheels. And that's, that's an upcharge. When we pray for increased prosperity is part of that prayer that we might be able to be to be more giving. When we work to get ourselves to be out of debt and not have any debt over us, is part of it just so that I can take a better vacation or can I be more generous with this new abundance that I now have? I pray that we would pray that we could be more generous. So that sharing goods, how can we share the church fellowship meal I think is a great great model of this don't you think everybody who has something brings something and if you don't have anything guess what you're still welcome we've had people come and they brought a bag of chips we had one couple didn't have a, didn't have a home they brought some apples from the apple tree that they that was on the property that they were camping on. Other people brought great stuff. This, that's just, to me, the, such a great example of our church fellowship meal. What do you have? Bring it. You got nothing? Still come. You're still welcome. So that's sharing goods, sharing life. When a brother or sister visits our church, we need to show, make sure that we show them honor and if they need to be and we need to help them on their way, um, 
physically we can do so, but we can help them also on their way by encouraging them in Christ, letting them know that um, this is a safe place for them to come. Whenever they're passing through, this is a place of sanctuary for them. They can come and sit down and rest and enjoy the things of God, and we send them out with their bless- with, with our blessing. And so... Um, and perhaps maybe even share life with them. Go out to lunch with them. Take them, uh, invite them out to a cup of coffee if they're here for the week. But sharing goods, none of us are exempt. Sharing life, none of us are exempt from that either. And so let us think about how we bless one another. Folks, this is Monday morning Christianity.